You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Great. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the executive panel on digital finance and crypto assets oversight. Where do we stand? I am Babak Abbasade, CEO of Toronto Centre. I'm honored to be the MC for today's event. I hope you can hear me without all the echoes. Before we begin, please join me in commending Moroccan authorities for holding such an impressive and well-organized global annual meetings right after the devastating um, earthquake. This is a prime example of resiliency. Congratulations, Morocco. <laughs> Toronto Center, which is dedicated to building the capacity of financial supervisors, is the proud co-organizer of this conversation in collaboration with our partners, Bretton Woods Committee, the CFA Institute, and our friends at the Moroccan Capital Markets Authority. While each organization has its own distinct mission, and you can find them on Google, what is common to all of us is a fierce commitment to fostering meaningful dialogue, education, multilateralism, and ensuring high standards of ethics, transparency, and good governance in the financial sector. Today, we're discussing how new technologies Technological developments, including digital transformations, are triggering profound changes in the financial sector and whether these transformations can play a vital role in enhancing financial stability. While the opportunities are plentiful, we also need to avoid the pitfalls, such as breaches in data integrity, data ownership protection, and privacy, financial crime, cyber security, operational and concentration risk, and consumer protection. I have to lose my breath just reading all that list. So that's what we need to balance. It requires a very sophisticated approach to multi-stakeholder engagement and management. And for just getting us understand what the stakes are, we have assembled a very strong panel. Um, I'm just going to mention their names. You've seen their bios. In the interest of time, we're not reading them, neither me nor our moderator. William Dudley is the chair of the Bretton Woods Committee. Stefan Ingves is the chair of Toronto Centre and former governor of Ricks Bank. Neza Hayat is chairperson and CEO of AMC. And Neza, thanks for your cooperation with us. And Oliver Fines, head of capital markets policy in MA CFA Institute. So without further ado, I'm going to pass the mic to our good friend Marina. Moretti, the Deputy Director of MCM IMF. Marina, over to you. Thank you, uh, thank you, Babak, for, for the nice introduction. And uh, I would like to join you in thanking the, the authorities of Morocco for hosting um, this year's annual meeting. It's, uh, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, and also thanking the Toronto Centre for um, organizing this particular event. Just yesterday, the World Bank, the IMF, and the Moroccan authorities 
uh, issued a statement uh, on the Marrakesh principles for global cooperation. One of those principles under the umbrella of supporting transformational reforms, focusing on managing technological transformations to avoid digital fragmentation, narrow the digital divide, facilitate domestic and cross-border payments, and foster financial inclusion. Importantly, the Marrakesh principles also call for globally consistent rules and regulation to uh, effectively manage the risks of digitalization. So digital transformation has been at the center of, of many discussions that we have had uh, during this week. And we are here today uh, to discuss how authorities around the world can reap the benefits. That's a very big question that we all have. How can we reap the benefits of digitalization, uh, digital finance broadly, and specifically crypto assets, while effectively addressing the, uh, the attending risks. So let me uh, also welcome uh, the panelists. And, uh, and, and I wanted to start with you, Neha, with a broad question on, on uh, uh, digital finance. So um, how does digital finance contribute to the development of, of capital markets in your experience? And what is your vision uh, as a regulator? Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Marina. Good morning. And thank you. I would like to thank first uh, uh, CFA Institute, Bretton Woods, and of course, Toronto Center uh, for organizing uh, with our support uh, this panel uh, session. I think it's an important, uh, this is an important uh, issue, especially for a country and a, and a continent like ours. Clearly, and you said it, it is acknowledged that uh, digital finance is key to uh, develop our capital markets. Uh, why is that? Because uh, first, well, we uh, all kind of technology that can uh, enhance the access to markets, the access to, well, uh, even uh, banking, to access to transactions is important to, to, uh, to allow more individual uh, to, to invest in these markets, but also to, to allow more, more projects to be financed. And what, uh, what have we done on the, well, in the Moroccan, on the Moroccan capital market side? First, uh, innovation, technology, digital finance is, part, is a main, uh, uh, main uh, orientation in our strategy. Uh, what we've started, uh, uh, well, ye years ago, even on the stock exchange, uh, where uh, since uh, uh, around 15 years, we do have online uh, stock brokerage companies, and we know that it's important to, uh, to, gather, uh, to attract more individuals in a market that is mainly uh, uh, composed of institutional investors, both local or high net worth individuals, so to have more pe people. And, it, and these uh, online stock brokerage companies uh, um, received more clients du during COVID when people had not much to do, so they, they, they discovered the, our stock market. Well, digit, uh, uh, tackling innovation in digital finance, I, I will not mention what is being done by banks, by the central banks to, uh, to push forward the digital payments. I would rather 
speak about how we uh, in the, in the uh, in the field of uh, capital markets how we tackle innovation uh, of fintech. So the 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 first uh, uh, posi the our position is to encourage innovation, but also to understand it and to find out what can be regulated and what cannot be. So for this, we, we are in, a, in permanent discussion with all uh, uh, startups that are, are willing to, to, uh, to go in this field, find out whether it, does, it, is, uh, uh, it is possible to be regulated or it is something that will be uh, handled by another regulatory such as central bank. Uh, we have a portal for this, and we we meet them uh, um, very often uh, on one side. So encourage those that can have projects of fintech. On the other side, to go further and to to uh, to get closer to the other to the other field that you will, we will be discussing, which is crypto. We have started by. Uh, with some proof of concept uh, to understand the risks we've done uh, uh, we, on blockchain with some banks and uh, to understand first if uh, uh, where are the risks, what it means to 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 have a uh, uh, a bond uh, a bond issue uh, with uh, uh, using blockchain. So we're doing this proof of concept and. Uh, the, the third, uh, I say, the, 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 uh, uh, that we are looking at is uh, how we tackle innovation in our legislation and our regulatory uh, scheme. And we listen and we, we cooperate a lot within IOSCO. We are involved in all fintechs, uh, both regional within. Uh, AMERC, the African and the Middle East, uh, Middle East uh, Committee, or in IOSCO, uh, to look at all the, the possibilities that, have, uh, that are being implemented and how we will, we, we will address them in our regulatory. Finally, the, the, uh, we were talking about financial inclusion, the, the first uh, digital, uh, I should say, platforms that we will be able today to, to license our crowdfunding platform. It took us a while to have all the, the complete uh, uh, legal and regulatory from, framework uh, approved and published. Now it's done. And uh, it's, uh, it's an exciting uh, moment for us because we know that so many, uh, so many startups uh, uh, need, need this kind of financing. We will be licensing this platform uh, either by, uh, through central bank, if it's a donation or, or loans platform, and uh, the Moroccan capital markets, if it's uh, equity. So this, uh, uh, so uh, everything has been approved, and uh, we we will be soon releasing some guidelines. Uh, we set up a special portal within our website to to explain that we. Uh, all these, uh, if we want to improve innovation and to encourage it, we need to do many, many 
um, uh, efforts on financial education so that everyone can understand uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and also have a permanent dialogue with all the stakeholders. So this is uh, my first response. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Nea. Guys, I think that is, uh, makes a lot of sense. It's a very cautious approach of monitoring technological development in finance and you know, cautiously supporting uh, products that are uh, to the benefit of the broader you know, stakeholder population while contributing to the discussion of the international standard setters. Um, let me turn to you, uh, Bill, on, on, uh, with a question on specific on crypto. Th there have been many discussions at the level of the G20, um, heated discussions, I, I, I would say, on whether crypto should be banned, you know, a blanket ban on crypto. And, and eventually, uh, the decision was taken of not uh, going for a blanket ban, but rather to, to uh, go for a regulatory approach. What do you think uh, are the potential macro financial consequences of going down this path, both positive and negative, and um, what should we expect in the near and longer term? Well, I, I'm very supportive of where the G20 is going because I think that if you try to ban it, you're just gonna push it into regimes that are not part of the consensus. And since crypto assets can be used um, offshore, um, banning it is just gonna essentially foster greater use for illicit activities. So I think uh, regulation is, is, is definitely the right approach. Also, when you think about you know, financial markets and payments uh, mediums, trust is really important. And if you don't have a regulatory regime, you're not gonna be able to ensure that trust over time. You know, as, as Gresham Law says, the bad money tends to drive out the good. So you want a regulatory regime so people have confidence in the, in the, in the assets that they're using as mediums of exchange, as stores of value. Uh, so I think the regulation is absolutely essential. Now, the risk of regulation is you're not always gonna get it right, and bad things are occasionally gonna happen uh, in the crypto world, and we've certainly seen plenty of those over the last you know, 24 months. But I would argue that the things that have happened are really because of the absence of regulation rather than because, than because we had regulation. I mean, if you look at what happened to FTX, uh, the trial right now is going on, you know, that was a, a f f essentially a lack of a, a regulatory regime. Uh, and I think you know, the having a regulatory regime is far superior to that. Um, the Bretton Woods Committee, we've been doing work on digital finance now for probably about a year and a half, and we've published seven briefs so far, and eighth brief coming out on central bank digital currency shortly. And our thesis is that you want to have regulation so you can see how far the technology can take you. We're pretty skeptical about crypto assets. We think there's a lot of speculation involved with crypto assets, but we think the technology of blockchain, of distributed ledger, has potential interesting use cases in trade finance, in cross-border payments, um, potentially in uh, securities and clearings and settlement, because you can have atomic settlement, instantaneous transactions, and you have a single notion of what truth is. I mean, some of the great frauds that have been executed uh, over the last 50 years are in trade finance 
where people thought they had a claim on a warehouse of olive oil, and then they found out that the olive oil had actually been sold to someone else. Well, if you have a distributed ledger that makes clear that the, claim, that the, that the olive oil is owned by this entity and only one entity, and they can be very clear on that, that can reduce that, that kind of fraud risk. So our view is very, very simple. We want to have regulation that allows you to run the experiments, allows people to innovate, to see how far the technology takes you. We're pretty agnostic about how successful distributed ledger technology is actually going to be, because it has a number of problems. It, throughput is a real problem. It's, it's pretty slow. It's pretty expensive. There, are been, there have been some innovations that recently, proof of, 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 of stake rather than proof of work. Uh, there, there are new technologies like sharding that are promised to potentially increase throughput. But right now, I'd have to say, uh, the evidence suggests that there's more promise than actually success in terms of making this a really viable means of, of payment. It's just too expensive, too slow. And of course, you know, the cryptocurrencies themselves are not stable stores of value. I think you can, can have stable stores of value in terms of, of, of stable coins, but to do that, you need regulation that requires those stable coins to be backed by central bank reserves one-to-one uh, -one and audited in a real-time basis. And we really don't have that yet. I mean, they're, they're ha one of the leading stable coins basically claims that they have sufficient assets to back uh, their, their, their stable coin, but we don't actually have real-time evidence uh, that that's the case. And, you know, the interesting thing, you know, stablecoin now is a lot more viable model with interest rates at 5% in the United States than it was when interest rates were at zero. Because if I can take in stablecoins, if I can take in cash, issue stablecoins, invest the proceeds in central bank reserves, make 5% on that, uh, that's, a pretty good, that's a pretty good business model. So, the business, so, it's a, so there is a business model there that I think is viable. I think the regulators in the United States, at least, have been pretty slow to be willing to uh, lean in to this innovation. Uh, a number of firms have actually tried to get uh, access to the Federal Reserve uh, uh, settlement, and they've been denied, and there's actually lawsuits uh, that, are, that are taking place. Uh, Custodia Bank, for example, is suing the Federal Reserve because they can't, uh, they, the Fed has ruled, essentially not ruled about their application about whether they'll offer them a master account. And, you know, I think the Fed's worried about the precedence they're setting by these approvals. But I also think, you know, every regulator has a responsibility to come forward with a, a, a coherent rule set. You know, this idea that, you know, you can just say no without any reason, without any rationale, I think is, you know, pr you know competitively unfair because you really do want to see where the technology can take you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bill. Let, let me turn to, uh, to you, Stefan, with a question on, on regulation. So now we do have high-level principles that the FSB just issued on um, crypto assets, including stablecoins, as well as the global stablecoin arrangements. And these are supposed to constitute um, a global approach to crypto asset regulation. How do you envision at the, at the national level such a consistent global regulatory framework for crypto assets taking place? And what challenges and opportunities does this pose for international cooperation on financial stability? Well, let me, let me start way, way, way back and reflect for a second on what is really important in a functioning market economy. What you need 
is orderly transfers of ownership titles. That's the key to it all. If you don't have that, nothing works. And that's an idea, and that requires a sound legal definition of what you do, and it requires some kind of a regulatory framework with reference to what Bill just talked about. Because you need to understand what to trade, what you are trading, and what you are transferring, and you need to understand how to trade. That does not change because technologies change. These are ideas that we have in our heads when it comes to how we organize our societies. And those ideas are basically technology neutral. And from that perspective, there's almost nothing new under the sun, despite the fact that technologies change over, over, over time. And that is, I think, the key to it. In the old days, everything was on paper. Now we move into an environment where we have to live with and accept that nothing will be on paper. And then the issue before us is then how do we, how do we, deal, uh, how do we deal with that? But the basic ideas are, in most cases, actually several hundred years old. So in that respect, there is nothing new under the sun. Some of the tech people don't agree with me on that, but I'll get to that in a minute. We know what an exchange is. We know what a broker is. We know what a market maker is. We know what it means to trade for, for your own account versus trading on behalf of your customers. We know how to define a money market fund. We know how to define a mutual fund. Um, and we know how to define underlying assets, uh, regardless of what people talk about it uh, in the crypto, uh, crypto space. And what all of this implies to me is that we need technology neutral rules. I think that that is the uh, key to it. And when it comes to international, the international aspects of this, because you can't really define where a digital this and that is located anymore. It's somewhere in the cloud. And that means that we need international cooperation. But we do have a longstanding uh, global, more or less global machinery for dealing with that. So uh, let's use those those organizations and institutions to, to make, that, uh, make that happen. And we should try to avoid reinventing uh, the wheel. Let me use only one example to explain why this needs to be done and why views sometimes are so different. When Libra, the Facebook currency, showed up out of the blue, uh, that was kind of like shaking the tree. And people almost overnight understand understood, oh my gosh, in my, I'm in this old-fashioned business, something is happening here, now what do we do? So, I sent for the Libra documentation. I got 200 pages of stuff. 190 of those pages were roughly tech specs. So I had to go to my IT people and ask, guys, what is this? Then there was roughly 10 pages on the economics of the whole thing. And if you bother to read those pages and try to understand what it was, you clearly understood that either those who wrote it did not understand what they were doing, or they had something to hide. And that was sort of a clear signal that this is not a technological issue. This is more about sort of how do you define money, how do you define trades, what is the legal, uh, legal framework, because keep in mind that Without laws, you can never understand what you move around in the cloud. 
So it's not a technological issue. At the end of the day, you have to have a set of rules. And if you don't have those rules, as Bill already said, good, bad money drives out good money in one form or the other, and it increases the likelihood that the whole uh, system uh, collapses. We were actually through a similar process in the 1800s uh, when a very large number of uh, central banks were created in different corners of the world. And sooner or later, all of them started issuing physical banknotes. And most banks were not allowed to issue physical banknotes because there were so many problems with, the, with that issuance. And now a similar problem sort of comes back and has to be dealt with again. But nothing has changed in terms of the intellectual content uh, of this, but technologies have changed. Thanks. Thank you, Stefan, for uh, bringing all of it back from the cloud on planet Earth. I, I think that's it's a very useful perspective for all of us. Um, uh, Olivier, let me turn to you now on uh, um, you know a further question on, on the G20 approach to uh, to crypto regulation. And you know, it is clear that they do recognize that. Uh, approaches need to be tailored to national uh, circumstances. And, um, you know, one specific challenge in, in the crypto space is that there is a lot of diversity, obviously, both in terms of, you know, crypto is, is, is a very diverse range of, of assets. I am specifically not using the word currency um, for a reason, but, you know, there is unbacked crypto, there is stablecoin that is backed. Uh, as Bill said, you know, there is a lot of debate on the stability of the stablecoin, depending on the backing. There are different platforms, DeFi, there are different, uh, there are multifunction crypto asset intermediaries that pose their own challenges. So this is a very diverse universe. And how should regulators approach this, this diversity? Thank you, Marina. Um, thanks also for the comments made by my fellow panelists. I'll be using some of those concepts as part of my own answer here. I think the, the irony of the debate on how to properly regulate crypto assets and in general the processes related to distributed ledger technology has been that at their core, crypto assets um, are meant to self-regulate or at the very least, offer a degree of security on the legitimacy of those transactions that was commensurate with the natural alignment of interest among all the users of the network. All right, that was the fundamental proposition. A network no longer based on trust guaranteed by financial institutions, but rather based on cryptography. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because history has shown, especially this year, 2022, that that was an aspirational belief at best. The events surrounding FTX, and we've discussed FTX briefly a, a moment ago, the FTX debacle have shown that we're dealing with an industry that is still largely immature and that is in dire need of institutionalizing its own business conduct. Whether that maturity is brought about organically from within or externally through regulation had been the question. And I myself wasn't really sure what I would have ideally wanted here. But it is interesting to note the words used by FTX's new CEO upon his arrival in November 2022, right? When he was describing the situation that he was facing 
at the failed company, he said, I have never seen such a complete failure of corporate control. In other words, this is an industry that completely lacked the natural reflexes of traditional finance. For all its flaws and its bureaucratic friction, there is a reason why we've put in place all the administrative scaffolding in banking and investment services to protect investor interest and the integrity of capital markets. Another problem has been that both traditional financial institutions and regulators, I have to say, have been largely surprised by the development of digital finance in all its variations, as you say yourself, and have since been playing essentially catch up. This is because the crypto movement was largely driven by a decentralized and grassroots initiative empowered by technology. That was rather new for finance, which tends to be a top-down um, process. Having said all that, then, what can regulators do to rectify this situation? We believe the fundamental principles developed by the FSB and IOSCO on crypto regulation are correct, starting with the very um, rational concept of same risk, same activity, same risk, same regulation, right? Then you keep it a little bit flexible and you stay technologically neutral. This makes a lot of sense to me. In other words, you need to focus on existing regulatory outcomes without being too prescriptive precisely at a time when the situation is still so fluid. Therefore, focus on key risks, which are existing risks in the financial industry. Custody and safekeeping of client assets. Clarify ownership rights. Who owns what? We were just discussing that on a blockchain. And how do you enforce or prove that ownership right? It seems like stating the obvious, but we need to get to the bottom of that problem. Conflicts of interest for anyone operating in finance. This is the absolute must. You have to understand the governance structure, especially in crypto when we're dealing with firms with multiple affiliates that combine sometimes conflicting activities. However, we also recognize at the same time the inherent limitations of this approach given that digital finance appears or at least uh, aspires to be naturally decentralized and borderless as we've discussed. So we will still need answers from international organization on the following critical questions. What are crypto assets or which ones are securities, commodities, securities, and under what conditions? We cannot have a different definition here across the world. Who are the responsible entities? We'll discuss that uh, more in detail later on. What is the economic proposition we are dealing with that creates a regulatory nexus, that creates a regulatory risk. Going back to your question on the diversification of products and services, Marina, there should rightly be a distinction between digital services, the technology that we've just discussed, and the tokens themselves. We're not talking always about the same thing here. So right now, the problem is we have different responses to these questions depending on the jurisdiction. I think the FSB, and IOSCO frameworks, as progressing as they are, they are still too vague and aspirational on some of those basic fundamental uh, questions, which do require clear guidance. 
Finally, I would like to say that the regulatory answers should be able to distinguish between objectives related on one side to business conduct and on the other side to financial stability, which are not the same thing. Our own Systemic Risk Council very early on recommended that stable coins, we mentioned stable coins, be regulated as systemically important. However, given the still small size of digital finance at the moment, we would probably argue that the main urgent risks are rather to be found in its pervasiveness with retail markets and individuals through phenomena like gamification and social media. Thank you. Uh, Olivier, and absolutely, I think we all agree that, you know, on the principle of same activity, same risk, same regulatory outcome or same regulation, but, you know, it's more complicated than that in terms of, uh, in terms of implementation and, and, and the borderless nature of, of crypto, as you said, makes it very complicated. I mean, one wonders how much of this market, let's call it market, is, is driven by regulatory arbitrage and, you know, thinking about how easy it is to the extent that you tighten the screws in country A, it's very easy to move to country B. And so I think we will get back to this point of, you know, what can we do as the international community in trying to sort of foster um, the closing of these, these uh, regulatory uh, gaps in, in a consistent manner. Um, let me get back to you, to you Stefan, uh, on a sort of broader question of, um, so is the growth of, of crypto gonna change the traditional financial markets? I mean, is, is that really uh, transformational in terms of you know, the financial markets that, as we know them? And more broadly, what, um, if we are witnessing really a transformation, uh, a broad transformation in traditional finance, what are the implications for uh, monetary policy, central bank, and global financial stability? Well, first of all, to, to refer to what, uh, what Bill said earlier, we don't know yet the, value, the potential value added of some of these new transactions technologies. So time will, uh, time will tell. But in terms of existing structure, uh, structures, either we, uh, we have a world where what I call the fiat currency team, which is basically central banks and the old banks, uh, adjust and start using these new technologies in an efficient way, or the old guys are so stale and oligopolistic so that others actually run faster. And if others run faster, we need to regulate them, but it's probably just fine that they run faster for the, for the economy as a whole. And there we don't know the outcome yet when it comes to new, uh, new players. Uh, but as I said, we have all these frameworks already and the new players will have adjusted to these new, new, new frameworks and they will have to accept that in the real world that's how things work. And you have to put up with a few regulators here and there who tell you what to do and what not to do. When it comes to monetary policy, of course difficult to, un to, to, under to fully know the answer to that as well, but first of all, if you happen to have your own currency, it is imperative in this new digital world that you maintain what I call transactional efficiency. It has to be simple, easy, and cheap, and safe to use your own currency. Because if that is not the case, you will use somebody else's money. 
And transactional efficiency is not a concept that central bankers are accustomed to, to talk about, because mostly you talk about inflation and sort of macro, macro things. And then, of course, at the macro level, it's obvious that if you, if you work hard on destroying the value of your own currency, then basically you produce a good or a good slash service that no one wants to hold. And then they will use somebody else's money. And it, we already know from many economies that do not function well at all, that if you to that add dysfunctional foreign exchange controls, then of course the whole system eventually moves to using somebody else's currency. And Marina, you spent your entire professional life at the IMF, so you have probably seen more dysfunctional cases than anybody else in this, in, in, in this room. So, so you know quite a lot about what to, what to do and what not to do when it comes to that. But this is really, really important because either, as I said, repeating, either the fiat money team is capable of adjusting or it doesn't happen and then the whole thing will move somewhere else. But eventually, it's going to be very, very important for many, many central banks to sort of go along with new technologies because otherwise, it, it will move out of, you, can, you run the risk of losing control of actually your own currency. And why I have the, 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 the microphone and the, on a separate topic, there's something called a global, uh, global uh, algorithmic safe coin, uh, stable coin. I would call that kind of an instrument an unstable coin. And that is because during my entire professional life, I have time and time again run up against situations where it's clear that markets function the worst when you need them the most. And that's why if you claim that an algorithm will save you when you are in deep, deep trouble, I just don't believe in that. Thanks. Thank you, uh, thank you, Stefan, and, and um, you know, and, and indeed, um, you know, what you said on the uh, on fiat money makes a lot of sense. And you know, one new phenomenon that we have seen as um, you know side product of of crypto is that what we used to see or we're still seeing in terms of you know dollariza dollarization and the challenges that it brings to to the conduct of monetary policy in a number of countries is now, you know, the new version thereof is cryptoization. And that's something that is of, of great concern uh, for a number of countries. Um, Bill, let me stay on the theme of trends. Um, and, uh, you know, there is a lot of focus on uh, monitoring developments. I mean, that presents its own challenging challenges given, given data availability. but. But uh, with this caveat, what do you think are uh, trends that regulators and policymakers should be particularly vigilant about? Um, and, and how, again, as I said at the beginning, the very big question of how can we strike a balance between um, fostering innovation, you know, disrupting innovation that is positive for, for consumers and, and investors, while at the same time, safeguarding against the range of, of potential risks, including you know, to financial and macroeconomic stability, but also fraud and uh, market manipulation. I mean, I think right now, fraud and market, market manipulation are really the center of the, of the problems. I mean, you've seen lots of cases where people have issued stable coins and then they've sort of just disappeared into the ether. 
Uh, and obviously, FTX is another example of, you know, essentially a, a market ma manipulation. They issued stable coins, then they then they illicitly apparently supported the market by buying the stable coins to boost their price, and then you, and then referred back to their treasury supply of these stable coins and said, look, we're worth ten billion dollars because these because the because the stock of stable coins is standing, we own most of them. Uh, obviously, we're very rich. Of course, if they actually tried to sell that 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 uh, those holdings, uh, the stable coin value would have plunged uh, dramatically uh, in, in in value. Um, I, I think generally, uh, at, at at this point, you know, we're not in a particularly good place because there's still a lot of activity taking place in the shadows. There's still a lot of this activity is associated with illicit and nefarious activities. Um, people have nowhere to really go if something goes wrong. You know, it's not like, it's not like you can sort of say, well, uh, FTX blew, blew, blew up, can you help me recover my, uh, my assets? I mean, the, the, the bankruptcy is, is trying to recover as much assets as possible, but there's not really a, a person to go to in a regulatory community help. And one of the big challenges, I think, is that the regulatory community doesn't have the uh, technological expertise to make really good judgments about what really good looks like. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge for central banks, frankly, as they get into the central bank digital currency space, is how do they make well-informed opinions about what technology to use, how to structure it, uh, how do they keep those people uh, engaged? I mean, Central banks are mostly about monetary policy, not so much about payments. And now we're sort of saying, we want you to actually do a lot more in the payment space. Uh, I think that's going to be very, very, very challenging for, for, for central banks. Um, you know, I think, you know, you know pe people talk about the you know, same activity, same risk, same regulation. I don't really particularly like that formulation because I don't think it's same regulation. I think it's same outcome that you want to focus on. I think you actually probably need somewhat different regulations for some of these digital finance activities because the activities are structured in a different way. What you want to have, I think, is the same outcomes across the different regimes uh, to, be, to be consistent with one, one another, same degree of safety, same degree of trust, the same ability to resolve uh, problems when something bad happens. Um, not necessarily the same regulatory re regime exactly in place. I think if you impose the exact same regulatory regime, you'd have two problems. The regulations would not be really fit for purpose if in the crypto regime, and you'd probably inadvertently have a bunch of gaps, because there'd be regulations you probably need for crypto because it's decentralized that you don't actually need uh, for centralized uh, finance. and I completely agree on, on the regulatory outcomes uh, point. Um, I have two more questions for uh, first Olivier and then and Nea. Um, if you could keep it short, the answer, so we have some time for Q&A. Um, Olivier, in, in a recent report of yours, uh, aptly called Crypto Assets Beyond the Hype, um, you know that decentralization poses a particular challenge for for, for regulation, um, you know, what are your views uh, on the dichotomy between decentralization and the need to hold parties accountable? And besides, is decentralization real or is it just a cover-up? 
Thank you again for the um, great question. So with this report, what we wanted to do was precisely to demystify crypto assets by bringing an investor perspective to this development, essentially bridge basically this technological breakthrough with the very regulated reality of financial um, markets. If you will allow me, I would like to use a, a quote supposedly attributed to former US Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, even if incorrectly, to illustrate one major problem we have faced as part of this research when discussing US relations with Europe. The story was that Henry Kissinger responded, and you might know the quote, what is the phone number of Europe, right? If I want to speak with Europe, who do I call, right? And when it comes to crypto, whether he actually said that or not is irrelevant. I think it's pretty relevant. The problem with crypto is that we're dealing with the same problem here. What is the phone number of Bitcoin? Who, who, who do I call if I have a problem with, 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 with Bitcoin? The entirety of the regulatory corpus dealing with financial services is predicated on the notion that there are responsible entities and responsible people that can be held accountable for their decisions and their actions. With crypto, we're dealing with a very different environment. In fact, the debate surrounding the recently proposed bill in the US called the uh, Digital Asset Market Structure Bill was precisely related to that question. How can we fit crypto assets within existing crypto uh, secu US securities laws if there is no issuing entity to speak to, basically. Hence the astute solution to split the bill, so to speak, between the SEC and the CFTC, depending on the sequencing of the issuance of new tokens, right? And this notion of centralization here is where it becomes important. This is where the SEC, where the proposed bill draws the line between the SEC and the CFTC. So the problem, again, is that if you ask regulators in the US, in the UK, or in the EU, you'll get a different answer to that very same question. This is why I had originally some sympathy for uh, Chair Gary Gensler in the SEC, who has maintained so far a very strict line. Until Congress gives me an update, I'm going to assume that what we're dealing with here is equivalent to what we're dealing with in the world of securities for all its flaws. That is at least an understandable line. This then takes us back to same activity, same risk, same regulation, which is, I think, the correct standpoint, and I think I agree with you. You can caveat that by focusing on desired outcome. Regulators should approach this problem from the point of view of regulatory outcomes they seek to achieve and then report to their legislators when there are gaps. This has been the approach, for example, taken in the UK. Um, I'll conclude with the caveat that in the case of crypto, this goes back to what was said previously. It is possible, at least in my opinion, that technology itself will cause or might cause this logic to fail uh, or to prompt a possible need to legislate uh, precisely on the problem of the issuing entity or the responsible entity. This is where I think most debate will be hanging over the following, uh, following years. We, we might have reached an inflection point, probably similar to what we're seeing with AI, decision-making may have switched from what we thought it was to what it could become. So the crypto industry, to finish, will argue and is arguing that precisely it is this absence of intermediation that makes the whole process more secure and more direct. I do not think we can accept this premise in its entirety, basically. 
the industry will have to reckon with needs to demonstrate that marketing and advice needs to be respectful of basic principles related to honesty, proper representation, and fiduciary duty, which are the remit of regulators. Thank you. Thank you, and, and um, you know, that, that was absolutely very thoughtful. Let me ask uh, Nezal a last question to you, going back to, um, to this issue of the cross-border nature of, of, of crypto and, and the challenges that it poses to, uh, to implementing a globally consistent regulatory approach. Um, in this space, how can we facilitate cooperation among nations in, in establishing um, regulatory framework? And what else can standard setters do or should do, uh, both in terms of further shaping global regulatory approaches as well as in fostering implementation? Okay, thank you. Anyway, glo uh, global cooperation is key uh, because uh, as you uh, as you've heard, I mean, the uh, nation approaches are different. There are countries where these uh, crypto activities are not uh, regulated, are not even uh, uh, legal, which is the case today in Morocco. We, uh, what we did up to now the, was to warn the investors uh, saying that uh, the, their investment uh, uh, are not uh, protected because there's no regulation, there's no legislation. Uh, but uh, we couldn't do more. If, in order for us to really uh, protect these investors, uh, we, we had to start with the legislation. And clearly we, are on a, uh, we have a national group for these uh, crypto assets and we're in a, in a process of drafting a specific legislation and uh, to, well, to oversee crypto assets first and to identify what we, we, uh, what we call by crypto asset and the, to, to do so, uh, clearly uh, we, we cooperate, we look at what has been done, we, we, have, to, uh, uh, we have to take the standards, uh, this is why we, we work within the uh, different uh, committees, fintech committees at IOSCO, and we learn from what, ha what is happening elsewhere, especially in terms of, uh, 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 of risks. We, we have the same approach as we, uh, same, uh, same activity, same risk, and then uh, uh, same regulatory uh, approach. Uh, but uh, even if today and uh, if tomorrow we, we are to, to have this legislation, we will still need, and I think it's key, to have a uh, international, we have these MOUs within IOSCO, but cooperation is, international cooperation will be important because I will not be able to protect in an, an investor that would use, I mean, that we use platforms elsewhere that are, we are not regulating. So uh, no matter what are, what, uh, are our national uh, uh, legislation or regulatory, we definitely need to understand that we, we, we have, and it's quite 
difficult because it's a different world. We're not in the traditional environment. So how we will be able to, to work together and uh, protect uh, uh, our investors worldwide? I think it's that, this is a big challenge and we're only at the beginning. Thank you. Um, I take the blame for only leaving six minutes for Q&A, so I just want to open uh, the floor, please. Thank you. Um, um, we spend a lot of time sp speaking about crypto assets, uh, but in the digital assets world, there are also stable coins and CBDCs. And to some extent, the more stable coins and, C and CBDCs uh, take place, the more cryptos um, will be reduced in space. So a question from the panel, a comment on these two other forms of digital assets, CBDCs. What do you think about the efforts made by the various central banks to catch up with what the PBOC have done? They've already launched that the central banks are still studying. On stable coins, what do you think about the fact that uh, commercial banks may want to issue their own stable coins, so to speak, in the forms of tokenized deposit or properly called stable coins as an exchange for helping central banks to introduce CBDCs in a um, kind of two-tier format? Thank you very much. So I'm happy to say that I have no objection to stable coins that are 100% backed by not treasuries, but bank reserves you know, at, at the central bank. I mean, you know, even if you ha have treasuries, you potentially have interest rate risk. And you want to make sure that the reserves are, are sufficient to always 100% plus collateralize the stable coins. And I, I, and you know, if you allow that to take place and are comfortable that you know you you have confidence that the reserve backing is always there, I think the stable coin is a is a is a good store of value, and then it can be used uh, in sort of interesting technological ways. And one you know one potential advantage of a stable coin is they can be used to embed a smart contract, and so execution can be done. You can sort of have novel ways of transactions actually be taking place. So I think it's perfectly po possible to go down that path. In terms of central bank digital currencies, I think there's no question that they're coming. Uh, we already have a, a s several countries that do have central bank digital currencies, and literally tens and almost, I think, probably 100 countries are engaged in pilot programs of, of some sort or doing very serious research about central bank digital currencies. I view central bank digital currencies just an improved version of cash. I mean. Cash is basically a, a form of, 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 of transactions. Central bank digital currency is a little bit better because if you, you know, it'll be, hopefully it'll be harder to lose than cash. And uh, transactions, we get, you know, when I'm paying you with cash, I need to be pretty close to you to make the transaction. With a central bank digital currency, I can make a transaction with you, you know, at long distance. So I feel, I feel like central bank digital currencies, I think, are ultimately going to be an improvement on cash. How much they change the world, though, I think is really gonna depend on how they change the payment system. You know, in the United States, for example, you have some very strong embedded pay a payments regime where most people are very comfortable using credit cards to pay for a very high proportion of their assets and for their, for their purchases. And it's not the most efficient regime. Uh, retailers have to pay a, a interchange fee of about two to 3% of sales. Uh, but as long as the users are comfortable with it, 
it's not clear you're actually going to be able to force that out into a, into a central bank digital currency regime. But I definitely think it's coming. I think the Fed will be probably the last uh, to introduce a central bank digital currency. Um, I think the, 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 the Federal Reserve is very uh, conservative uh, in this respect. Uh, the dollar is a reserve currency. And the last thing you want to see is, is some sort of mistake made in a U.S. dollar-based central bank digital currency. So I think the Fed will be a, a slow follower uh, rather than a rapid leader in this space. Can I add to that? And a sort of very general reflection on that is that I th do think with new technologies, it, with a sort of an add-on to what, what Bill just said, is that we're going to see different degrees of moneyness when it comes to different types of financial instruments. And clearly you have, just for the sake of the argument, a, a, a digital central bank currency. You can have stable coins uh, with a 100% reserve ratio. And then you have sort of different degrees moving further and further away from money. And I do think that we will see diff very different versions in the very different parts of, uh, parts, of, uh, parts of the world when it comes to how you set that up. I do think, though, that, and that's a different panel when it comes to CBDCs, one needs to be mindful of the fact that, unfortunately, in some parts of the world, in some countries, the central bank is the only functioning institution. And then, of course, in that environment, it makes a lot of sense also from a financial inclusion perspective to actually produce a, a, a CBDC because that's the only, only asset that people really prefer to hold. And in addition that, to that, the only alternative is to hold dollars or euros or somebody else's currency and that has all sorts of other problems going with it. I would just like to add a quick point to what both Bill and Stefano was just saying. We, we, we've done our own research on the CBDCs, and we've questioned our own membership, the CFA membership, on what they thought about that. Two interesting remarks based on what you said. First of all, most people don't understand what we're dealing with here. Even our own membership, only about 10% said, yes, I think I know what we're talking about here when you're saying <laughs> CBDCs, okay? 90% said, no clue. Another interesting point regarding what you said is, it was very clear across the analysis that the interest for CBDCs was much higher in emerging economies than in developed economies. Canada, US couldn't care less about the CBDC, but the interest in India, in China, in the Middle East, for example, in Latin America, was very much higher, above 50%. We haven't exactly tried to explain why, but the fact of the matter, going back to the stability that you were discussing, it is possible that people would trust uh, a CBDC more than, of course, they would trust a private cryptocurrency to provide them with the mechanism of payment that we are saying might improve this concept of um, inclusive finance. For, for example, so we, we thought there, was, there were a series of interesting dichotomies here, but of course also the major reason brought forward for not wanting CBDCs are still something that we'll need to get to the bottom of, which is privacy uh, and cybersecurity risk of fraud. There is no chance of success if you don't resolve those, those problems up front. Thank you. Excuse me. Thank you. I think we will need to wrap up. Right? Yeah. So, um, so let me wrap up this conversation by thanking the, the panelists for their views and their candor. Um, 
So, ladies and gentlemen, this brings an end to uh, today's event, and thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.